What up, HyperChange? Welcome to another episode. Uh, today, we've got some really exciting uh, stuff lined up. We're going to nerd out on Tesla's financials. I'm personally super stoked for this episode. Um, we've got Meyer Thacker uh, as a guest today. He works for Zach's. Um, friend of mine on Tesla Twitter, putting out some amazing research. And so I kind of wanted to dive into his charts, his thesis, um, and really get you know into the weeds, dive deep onto Tesla's transformation since the Model 3, because a lot has transformed about the profitability and cash flow profile of the company. And I think that really explains what we're seeing in the market now in terms of the company's outperformance. So this is like the perfect time to dive deep on all this. Um, really excited to have you on the show, Meyer. Thanks for coming on. What up, Piper Change? <laughs> I'll so, um, say that. Yeah. So maybe you could start with, um, you sort of had this uh, thesis of the triple uh, threat of Tesla. Three things are driving the stock. Um, and maybe you could, we could start there and you could break that down for us. Yeah, sure. So I think there's, there's a lot that's been discussed about Tesla. And I think one of the reasons or probably the driving force behind this crazy run that we've seen in Tesla shares, I think are three particular developments that are happening. Um, Tesla's revenue growth has been discussed ad nauseum, right? You know, we know that revenue CAGR has been off the, you know, it's at 50% over the last six years or so per year. Um, however, what I like to look at is not just revenue growth and gross profit growth, um, but I like to look at the adjusted EBITDA line uh, which looks at not just top-line growth, but also captures the operating leverage of the company. Um, but overall, I think what's happening is we have growth. We have operating leverage that's kicking in. Um, there's also increasing returns on capital. And this is an important concept because, you know, growth is great. But if it costs a lot of money to achieve that growth, that puts a little bit of a damper in the return of the equity. So, you know, you could have two companies and they're both growing at say 50%. But if one company requires billions of dollars of capital to achieve that 50% growth and another company requires half of that, then the one that is spending less to achieve that same growth is going to outperform. So I think what's going on now is, uh, you know, a realization in the market that Tesla's growth is going to be better than uh, not just on a nominal basis, but on a per capex dollar basis. And I think there's a couple of charts that we have to that we have that we're going to look at uh, that that sort of illustrates that. So first is growth and operating leverage. Second is increasing returns on capital. Uh, which measures efficiency. And third uh, is declining leverage. So that to me is a triple sort of play, a triple threat, all of which is affecting Tesla's cost of capital. And when the cost of capital declines, uh, returns on the equity increase. So I think that's what's happening. And that's basically the summary of everything that we've, uh, you know, that, that we're seeing, that we're witnessing right now with Tesla. Yeah, and this is why I love your research because us Tesla longs have really been saying for so long, you know, this is a different type of company. Tesla's growing extremely quickly. You haven't been able to see the profitability potential of what Tesla can be, how exciting this business model is, because it's too early. 
But now we've started to get more and more, as Tesla's evolved, as they've come out their first mass market vehicle, the Model 3, we're starting to truly get that data and that evidence that is supporting that long-term bull thesis of Apple of the automotive industry, you know, higher structural profitability, like this is really a different beast and should be valued um, like something different than an auto company. And like you have are building basically the data case for that. So that's why I'm so excited to kind of dive into this. Um, so let's just get to the first chart. Um, you brought up a global EV market share chart, I guess EV sales in general. Um, and at a high level, you know, EV sales are just about 2%, you know, two, three million cars sold a year out of the 90 million in the world. Um, so as much as we're excited about this green movement, like we're just scratching the surface on the disruptive nature of this trend, how far this, you know, EV market has to go to just replace ICE vehicles. Um, so what does this chart tell you about Tesla and, and why is it important to you? Yeah, because I think right now, especially during this pandemic and the entire aftermath of that, you know, the biggest question that people have now is, you know, if we if we fall into a recession, um, what's going to happen to Tesla sales? You know, if we if we see twenty percent unemployment, which I think is what we're going to get when the Labor Department releases the next uh, you know jobs report. You know, what does that mean for Tesla sales, you know, especially with, you know, 50, $60,000 cars. And I look at, you know, I try to understand that and approach that question by looking at market share growth. Um, because we have examples in the past where, you know, companies like Amazon, uh, Apple, Netflix, they all grew revenue, even through the great financial crisis. Um, not to say that their shares didn't, you know, tank, they did, you know, they did drop, you know, precipitously, but they grew revenue through that entire crisis. And it's because they gained share market share, such that it offset any losses in overall, uh, you know, revenues or overall sales of the industry. So even though retail sales collapsed in 2008, 2009, Amazon grew through that because they gained so much share. So I look at, you know, what the market share growth has been for electric vehicles globally. And we see on this chart, essentially it's exponential. And it still stands, that, and this is as of 2008, I believe it's even, you know, it's, it's even higher in 2019. But this is as of 2018. And global market share for BEVs and, you know, plug-in hybrids were about 2.2%. Um, I think there's a lot of room for growth in that number and we've seen that happen every single year as you can see in this chart so there is a i think that there is a distinctive chance that even if we do have a global recession if you know global market share of battery electric vehicles you know say for example doubles over the next two years that is in and of itself i think is enough for tesla to absorb any downturn in auto sales overall so that's a, a, an important thing to look at. Great point. Yeah. Um, and yeah, a couple points on that. A, the factory shutdown. If Tesla's factory is shut down for a really long time, there's no way they can grow. So I think in some ways this is kind of a unique situation, but I think at a high level, like you're on point. Why did Tesla grow their deliveries 40% last quarter, you know, even though they were shut down for part of it and we had this whole, you know, catastrophe, they still were up 40%. Everyone else in the auto industry is down. So we're actually, you know, just based on Q1, seeing evidence of exactly what you're saying. Um, so now let's move into the quarterly trailing 12-month revenue growth. So this basically adds up the last four quarters of revenue. Um, 
And yeah, maybe you could break this down for us. I see Tesla scaling to about 24 billion. It seems like we've hit like a sort of pause as they reach capacity of the Model 3 production line. Um, and that's what's interesting about Tesla is so much of their growth and their trajectory is guided by their ability to increase production. And so now that we have them bringing on Model Y, um, bringing on uh, uh, Gigafactory Shanghai, additional production, this number should start to go up. But um, what, you know, what does this chart tell you? Why, why is this important? Yeah, so uh, just really high level, the way I interpret the revenue growth uh, or just revenues in general for any company is it's essentially a, a reflection of the sheer uh, raw demand for the products, right? So, you know, Tesla could have industry leading margins or whatnot. You could have the best profitability or whatnot, but revenue is basically a reflection of the demand for the product. You know, the big question a couple of years back was, you know, what's the demand for these vehicles like? You know, are consumers going to be willing to take on, you know, the slight, you know, inconveniences of, of an electric vehicle, right? You have to charge, you know, find a place to charge. You have range anxiety. You have other issues. You have, you know, not as robust of a service network um, and things like that. So the big question is, you know, are consumers ready to adopt electric vehicles? And so I look at the revenue growth and that's telling us exactly that, you know, it is catching on, it is gaining share as we saw in the previous chart. So revenue growth itself um, is just a raw, you know, measure of demand. Um, now the next chart, however, which is the Tesla gross profit, right? That tells us, you know, what is the raw, you know, measure of profitability? Um, and it's this number where I think it's gonna get really interesting over the next year or so. Um, because of another chart that you know Tesla showed on one of their uh, previous shareholder letters, I think it was from Q3 of 2019. Um, but basically, it was a it was a small little bar chart. It was a tiny little chart that they had in that, where um, they showed the, uh, the the total capex that's required for the Model Three built in Fremont. Next to that is the total capex of the Model 3 built in China. And then next to that is the total CapEx of the Model Y. And the Model Y is significantly lower than either of the previous two. So the, the most expensive car was made in Fremont Model 3. Significantly cheaper than that is made in China Model 3. And even more significantly cheaper than that is the Model Y. So I think you know, with the effect of the Model Y, you're going to see not just a bump in revenue um, because the Model Y is attacking a much bigger segment, but you're going to see a greater bump in gross profit. So revenues may grow, say, 40, 50%. I'm not sure exactly what, what it's going to come out to in 2020, um, but gross profit is actually going to grow, in my opinion, even faster than revenue growth because the incremental capex spend therefore less depreciation is a lot less compared to model three yeah and this is a really interesting part that i think maybe you, you lost over because it's kind of complex where tesla has to pay for these production lines up front to build a car and tesla's a new company when they built their first mass production line for a model three it was kind of a disaster and a mess up that's why it took so long they had to like build the ga4 in the tent there was all these sort of hiccups, but they learned from that and all these efficiencies we're seeing financially play out in reduced CapEx per unit of output, which is that metric you're saying. 
Um, and so can you really dive deep into how that metric impacts gross profit? Because my understanding is it's less of a cash thing where it's like they paid less to build out all of these production lines. So that depreciation of those production lines is less um, when they go back and actually start pumping out cars. So that's why in theory, we haven't really seen the impact of these CapEx improvements on the income statement until we see production ramp from Gigafactory China and from Model Y, because that's when that incremental depreciation will be that you know cut in half per unit. So is that what you're talking about of where like we're gonna get to see that CapEx improvement start to show up on the income statement this year? Exactly, yeah. And th there's a direct link um, between depreciation and CapEx, right? Because CapEx is, CapEx is the amount of money that's spent to acquire all the tooling and the factory itself, right? And building, building out that factory. Um, so as that is spent up front, it's then depreciated over time, which hits the income statement um, over time gradually. Whereas, you know, if you're looking at the cash flow statement, it actually hits right up front. So it's not a recurring charge. It's a one-time hit all up front. Um, However, you know, with the Model Y, I think, you know, and given all the tidbits that, that Elon has given, even on the most recent uh, Third Rope, you know, Tesla podcast, um, you know, he, I think he pretty much reiterated that same point, which is that, you know, Model Y, it's not going to be very different from a user standpoint compared to Model 3. Um, but uh, the internal uh, sort of, you know, the complexity of the body itself is so much simpler than Model 3, that uh, the, you know, the amount of CapEx that's needed to build it out is gonna be significantly less than Model 3. Um, and I think we've already seen that because you know, throughout 2019, there wasn't a whole lot of CapEx that Tesla you know, you know, put out there. They were way below their, their forecast. I think they spent about 1.5 billion or slightly less than that in, 20, you know, in 2019 on CapEx, which is very low. Um, it's almost too low, you know, too low to believe, but um, that's going to pick up this year. Um, so I think their, their guidance this year is about $3 billion in CapEx, um, which is, you know, a doubling of from, from last year. And that's probably expected um, because, uh, you know, their, the ratio of CapEx to depreciation had fallen basically below one. And usually companies can't ever sustain that. That's never long-term sustainable because you can't, spend less than what it takes to maintain your existing factory and tools and things like that. So it can dip below one for a while. There's many companies that have this. Amazon is below one, you know, Home Depot I was looking is also below one. So many companies can have CapEx that's less than, than depreciation for a while. And that's because it's, it's really cyclical, right? It's what we're yeah. talking about is like, that's why Tesla is looks so like a juicy business the past year or so, because they put in all this CapEx in 2017 and 2018 to build up those lines. And then now they didn't really put in CapEx. They're just taking out all these cars and all these non-cash expenses but then it's, it's very cyclical. And that's why I always say like, man, this COVID hit at the perfect time for Tesla because they were at this part in the cycle where they were about, they had the most cash ever and they're about to pump in all this excess cash in production and they can kind of wait and, and slow that down, you know, as, as they see demand playing out. But anyway, so I didn't want to interrupt, but. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. Yeah, so we're going to see that wax and wane over time. It's going to be cyclical. Um, I know it's, it's been one of the big, you know, talking points of, uh, of the short sellers that, you know, they're super underspending on CapEx. And I think that's a fair point and that's going to come back up, 
but but it's also like so you're getting mad at tesla because they're getting like their you know bear case is actually our bull case i'm like yeah you're baffled about how little they're spending on capex and it doesn't make sense to you because you refuse to acknowledge that tesla's rate of improvement at actually building out these production lines is getting way better faster and that's yeah. the big difference and they just refuse to acknowledge that yeah um, yeah no exactly and and as another chart is going to show you know coming up here um the, the one of the biggest bear talking points is that you know tesla is a capital intensive business just like every automaker out there and yet they have, you know, they're, they're trading at a massive premium, you know, to everybody else. And we're going to see, I think, why that is. Um, and it's specifically due to this one point that we're, you know, that we're discussing right now, which is the ratio of revenue to CapEx. And also the ratio of EBITDA to CapEx. I think these two things are going to be critical to understand why Tesla is not anywhere close to being as capital intensive as the overall auto industry. And why I think is going to be where that finally reveals itself. Uh, so starting this year, we so, see that. I can't wait. So we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves because you're, you're jumping like charts 10 and fit. So can we, can we get, yeah. get to, uh, this adjusted EBITDA? So this is the next metric after gross profit. Um, and yeah, just dive in. I'm a little bit skeptical of adjusted EBITDA. I think it's important to understand, but it's also one of those PE guy metrics of like, we bought this business that invested all this money in these huge equipments. Now they're just a cash cow. We want to look at the financials without all that legacy investment. And, you know, it's kind of like a finance MBA bro PE guy way to value things, which is frustrating. <laughs> um, it's not like a real metric. So why does, why should we care about Tesla's adjusted EBITDA and why are you looking at it? Yeah, sure. Um, so let me preface by saying uh, adjusted EBITDA or even EBITDA is not net. In, it's not. I'm not claiming it's net income. It's not gap net income. It's not the bottom line profit number. Um, what it is is uh, whenever you're looking at a hyper growth company, um, the job of an analyst should be to be able to separate um, as much as you can between discretionary spending and non-discretionary spending. Discretionary spending uh, refers to the spending that they're doing around growth, around achieving growth. Non-discretionary spending is the spending that's required to maintain present day operations as is going forward. So what the adjusted EBITDA number does, and the way that I calculate this is simply using EBIT, right? We start with EBIT, and then what we do is we simply add back depreciation and stock-based compensation. Which so, is on the cash flow line. So you go exactly. into the cash flow line. You go into the cash flow statement, right, okay. add that back. So the reason why this is important is because it, A, helps separate a little bit of that growth spending from non-discretionary uh, spending. Um, it also captures... Uh, in a, in a more easy to identify way, the overall trend of operating profit. So if you look at this chart, you can actually see, and you, it's, it's very easy to annotate this chart, just because we know Tesla, we know the history of Tesla, but you can see that you know, from 2013 onwards, you can see that you know, rise of adjusted EBITDA, and that was attributable to the Model S ramp, right? Then we see that number start to wane again, and it actually goes into slightly negative territory, you know, by 2015. 
And that, just, just because we know the company, that was the, uh, you know, Tesla going back into R&D mode to bring out the Model X. So then we see that surge in, uh, I think it's right around late 2016. Uh, that is the surge of both Model S and Model X together. Okay. And then Tesla once again goes into R&D mode. And that's why we see that adjusted EBITDA line, you know, once again, wane uh, for in preparation for Model 3. Then once, once Model 3 is fully developed and ramped, then you see that huge jump up again in adjusted EBITDA. So you can see the cycle of, you know, the development to um, the, the development cycle to the ramp up cycle, development cycle to the ramp up cycle. So it's going waxing and waning like that. Um, so that, when you look at it in this way, it helps you understand, you know, what exactly Tesla is doing and how that's, you know, affecting not revenue growth and not, you know, gap net income, but right in the middle there which is that EBITDA line. So again, this is my way of just looking at the cash component of EBIT. So we take EBIT and we add back the non-cash expenses and that gives us this number. The reason why it's important to look at this is because I think it's a leading indicator for net income. Net income, if we look at the next chart, you know, net income has been negative, you know, throughout Tesla's entire history, right? Um, and we can see even for non-GAAP net income, it's been negative, but that's, that has now flipped uh, and is positive now very slightly, but still positive for the full year. So that I believe is the first time Tesla, Tesla has achieved net income on a non-GAAP basis uh, on in positive territory here. So um, it's- these are all last 12 months. So it's the past four quarters combined. Exactly. Which you need to kind of yeah. smooth out the quarterly lumpiness, I'm guessing. Right. Right. The other thing about uh, the adjusted EBITDA number is that it helps capture not just the top line growth, but also captures margin improvements at the gross profit line, as well as um, whether there's operating scale that's kicking in. Right. Um, and so we know that if we just look at the revenue caker, revenue caker has been about 50% um, over the last six years. And the EBITDA caker has been about 67%. So when you see EBITDA outpacing revenue growth, that means that there is operating scale that's kicking in. And that's exactly what we need to see in order for net income at the gap line to flip positive. So this is gonna happen first, and then gap net income is gonna happen afterwards. So as long as we see this trend continue where we see you know, the adjusted EBITDA line increasing, going up into the right. Um, that is the leading indicator for gap net income to flip positive again. So, and we saw this, you know, with Amazon, you know, from 1996 to 2003, um, it was a period of seven years where uh, they produced, you know, gap losses the entire time for seven straight years, but their EBITDA was growing at that entire, during that entire time. So uh, EBITDA for any capital intensive business um, is going to flip first. And as long as it continues to grow, that will ultimately reflect uh, in the gap net income line. So I think that as long as we see a growth in EBITDA further, and as long as it uh, outpaces revenue growth, which it has been, uh, we will see gap net income flip and, uh, and, and go to the positive, uh, you know, back into the black.
Yeah. And just before we move into this cash flow piece, what basically the difference in that adjusted EBITDA line and the, the gap income is all of these additional a non-cash expenses and then business expenses that aren't necessarily tied to the core business, maybe interest on loans. Um, so you're not saying that it doesn't matter that they're losing income on a net gap income basis. It's just when you read in between the lines, you can kind of see why. And there's a lot of reasons of why like there's silver linings and we can see that this is improving and has a path to improvement. Um, but so like what, why are you not, I guess like diving into the gap net income because I don't, because it's like the worst looking chart. So I want to kind of like give that time. Like why does that not bother you? And how do you expect Tesla's gap net income to kind of trend? Is it going to stay sort of negative around break even for like a long time? I think that's what Elon's guided at least until robo taxis really hit because just like Amazon, growth, growth, growth mode. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I like, I, obviously net income gap is important, right? It's the ultimate measure of profitability. It's the strictest measure of profitability. Um, however, like I said before, the job of an analyst when looking at any company is to ask why, right? Why, why is gap net income positive or why is it negative? Some people can achieve high net income on a gap basis by simply restricting CapEx. They can achieve positive net income by restricting R&D, right? And we see that happening now with companies across the board where, you know, they're cutting CapEx, they're cutting R&D, they're cutting everything that's not needed uh, to be able to survive this crisis, right? So, you know, yeah, they could achieve gap net income, but is that really what we want to see, you know, for companies? So, you know, Tesla could achieve, I think they could achieve gap net income if they simply stuck to making the Model S and X, right? If yeah. they just did Model S and X, they focused on selling $100,000 cars or $120,000 cars and did not invest in, you know, high scale production and international growth and expansion. You know, I think they could, they could be like the Lululemon of the auto industry. They could be like another Ferrari. Um, however, that's not the vision of the company, right? The vision is to achieve, you know, to, you know, advance the, you know, entire um, movement towards sustainable energy. Um, right. so, so gap net income, I think, is, is important to consider, but I don't think it's the number that we should be really focused on as much. In my opinion, I think free cash flow is the, is the much better measure of profitability than net income, um, because at least that number looks at whether the company is burning cash or generating cash. And ultimately, cash is the more important number rather than accruals, because everything on the income statement is on a accrual basis, right? You know, income and expenses are recorded when they are accrued. Um, whereas the cash flow statement looks at how much cash is leaving the business and how much is entering, you know, the business. So in my opinion, and a lot of investors actually, a lot of, you know, big time investors agree with this general statement, not specifically on Tesla, but just in general, that free cash flow is a better measure of the health of a company than gap net income. Yeah, because you can't play games with it. It's like, did your cash in your bank account go up or down? You know, usually barring some crazy situations, that's a pretty good sign of how your business is doing and very hard to like, you know, misguide someone. Um, but yeah. at a high level, I think just to sum up before we dive deep into this cash flow point, like there's a company behind every stock. You know, Tesla's not trying to maximize profitability right now. 
And if they wanted to, the company would look totally different. They're trying to grow and get way, way bigger. And that's why the financials look like the way they do right now. It's not like they're struggling to make money and they can't. It's like they're literally moving a thousand percent like in investment mode pretty much at all times, like a la Amazon, which is a totally crazy way of how companies have never really been run before until Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. So I want to get to that at the end of this. But um, with that, like, so let's talk about the actual cash flow generation of Tesla's business, because this is where the rubber meets the road. And this is what every single bear short set, like this is the chart to me of why Tesla stock has gone to new highs. This is why the short thesis actually crumbled because what they said Tesla could not do was actually make money. And the second four or five quarters ago, they're printing 400 million in the bank, 500 million in the bank, just like you're saying, cash flow. It's pretty hard to say Tesla loses money on every car sold when they keep adding hundreds of millions to their bank account every quarter, selling tens of thousands of cars, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so with that, like, let, let's dive into you got operating cash flow. We, we, we can start with that. Yeah, so this is, uh, I think it's very, very related to the adjusted EBITDA number um, because the only difference between uh, operating cash flow and adjusted EBITDA is the cash flow statement starts with gap net income and then starts to add back all the non-cash expenses. So this number is going to correlate very closely with the adjusted EBITDA number that we just looked at. Um, so in my opinion, I think the operating cash flow number is the most important um, you know, metric to look at Tesla's growth um, from a bottom line standpoint, that is. The top line obviously is important with you know, revenue growth, you know, basically telling us how strong demand is for these products. Um, but the cash flow number, in my opinion, is sort of the number that we should be looking at when assessing their profitability. Now it's not profit, it's cash flow. Right, so those are two sort of uh, technical terms that you have to dis you know, distinguish between. Um, but if you want to know, in my opinion, the operating cash flow line is the number to watch to understand how much is Tesla actually bringing home, you know, in the bank. Right, the free cash flow number looks at operating cash flow minus capex. Um, so that's the net number that's being added to their bank account, but. I, I would look at this number two, and as long as it's above zero, that's basically my, you know, my, you know, minimum requirement, because as long as they're not burning cash like they used to, um, you can see that number is flipped pretty decisively now, where we've got three quarters in a row that we've seen trailing, you know, four quarters of free cash flow being positive. And it's almost at, you know, it reached almost a billion at one point. Um, now, I'm actually using a slightly different definition of free cash flow here, which is that I take uh, the operating cash flow minus CapEx, and I also subtract out uh, the finance lease payments that they've made. So this is important because a lot of uh, what they've done at Gigafactory 3 in Shanghai is um, they've arranged the acquisition of a lot of those tools under a finance lease sort of arrangement. And a finance lease is basically just like, you know, the simplest example is like a mortgage, right? If you buy a house on mortgage, you know, you pay in, you know, monthly installments and over time you build equity into your, you know, into your house, but you get to keep the ownership of the house and you get to own it over time. So in the same way, uh, a finance lease is basically, you know, when Tesla acquires tooling and, you know, parts of the factory and other things like that, 
uh, under a seller provided, um, you know, seller provided financing. So over time, they have to acquire it. Basically, they get it all up front, but they recognize these payments over time. So that's technically also CapEx. So I sort of add that back as well. And even after that, uh, Tesla is positive on free cash flow. So that to me is the most important trend shift that we have seen through the entire history of, of Tesla, where for years and years, right, they burned cash. They not only were net income negative, but they were also burning cash. So that's not sustainable. So they were dependent on the capital markets to be able to finance that entire thing. Now they're not dependent on, on capital markets anymore. And I know that they just raised, you know, 2.3 billion in equity just a, just a few months ago. Um, but you know, if this number continues the way it is, that's going to be just you know, essentially a safeguard or sort of a rainy day fund or something like that, because um, they just did, you know, 750 you know, million dollars last year in 2019, according to this metric. Right. Cash flow. And if you think about this is like, to me, the biggest milestone in Tesla's history. We have an asset, this crazy electric car company that is burning, you know, billions, billions, billions. It looks like the product's awesome. It looks like it has all this potential, but like the financials, because they're so vertically integrated, it's so capital intensive. And people will, will say Amazon got profitable faster. Amazon's CapEx was less. I think Tesla's way more capital intensive per dollar of revenue than Amazon. So you have to look through that lens. And we finally, like even way more than I would have expected two years ago, like we've truly seen that dip to like, this is an asset that pumps out cash. And I think that, and like you said, they don't rely on the capital markets. This is why Jim Chanos' entire thesis is wrong. You have to keep raising money. Well, now Tesla doesn't. They can use that cash from their core business to fund it. They're no longer reliant on this perceived solvency thesis where the stock market has to believe they'll succeed to keep giving them money. It doesn't matter because they can get money there on their own. And I think this single-handedly stopping being reliant on the capital markets is why the stock has gone up. Like you can't take this down with fear and trying to freak the market out because it doesn't matter because Tesla's not relying on that as much anymore. So I think this is like, this chart is truly the evidence of, of you know, the biggest transformation Tesla's been sort of a growing up maturing phase to like becoming a grown up almost. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and actually, yeah. sorry, one, I forgot to add on that. Um, Amazon, the first thing they say in their earnings releases is operating cash flow is this, and then CapEx is this. These are the, before they're talking about earnings, before, if you go read their press releases. So I think when we're talking about these rapidly growing companies that are managing the profitable operations with cash coming in and immediately reinvesting it into these new things, this is almost slowly becoming one of the new most important metrics in finance for these new sort of hyper change, rapidly growing firms. I, I, I would 100% agree with that. I think free cash flow is the ultimate measure of whether the company is is sustainable or not um so if free cash flow is negative that means that the company is reliant on on debt and equity markets if free cash flow is positive they're not reliant on debt and equity markets so now that this number is has been has flipped positive now i will say that i think i think tesla's q1 is going to be a little bit rocky um so i think that number on the free cash flow and is going to be close to about negative 850 million according to my calculation but comp that to q1 last year it's not actually that bad and there's yeah. a lot of think there's a lot of it's more q1 is tesla's worst quarter from a cash flow standpoint throughout the year so right right yeah 
But Q2 is going to be awful too because of the whole COVID um, situation. Right. Yeah. I, I, I would, I would totally agree with that. But, but in general, I think uh, overall for the year, um, I think they're going to do another billion total of free cash flow, and that's despite wow. they've. Uh, that's despite the fact that they're doubling their capex spend uh, this year. So I think I think they're going to do about four billion um, in operating cash flow this year, minus about three billion in capex. That leaves us with about a billion overall. And that is cash flow this year. And when are you gauging a mental reopening of, of the U.S. Fremont economy and plant? Um, you know, what goes um, into that estimate? Because that's, that would mean, you know, that's a very good thing for Tesla. Yeah, I think it's going to, uh, well, I, I think I just got a notification just earlier um, saying that New York is going to be opening up on May 15th. So I think if, if New York, if the state of New York opens up on May 15th, I think California should be right around that target, you know, maybe even slightly earlier than that. So I'm just, you know, in my mind thinking that Fremont is going to be down until about May 15th or, you know, in that ballpark. Um, slow reopening. And with that kind of trajectory, that's, that's where your head's at for all these estimates. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And exactly. so this next chart here you got, that's, we dabbled a little bit on before revenue, um, CapEx ratio, uh, mm -hmm. Talk to me how about how you're calculating this and, and why it matters. So this number is important to understand, right? As I said uh, in my point earlier, growth is great, but if it's expensive to achieve that growth, um, then you have to sort of caveat that, right? So this chart uh, to me is, is, is critical to look at and, and, and pay attention to as we go over the next couple of quarters where we're gonna see Tesla's growth uh, in revenue going to exceed uh, the growth in CapEx significantly, in my opinion. And we've seen that starting to happen all throughout 2019 versus 2018. So as this number is rising, it's telling me that the cost uh, per dollar of CapEx uh, for, you know, to achieve each dollar of revenue is, is decreasing. So the, the total revenue per CapEx dollar is going up. So that to me means that, you know, growth is getting cheaper for Tesla, not more expensive or not even staying the same. And the same thing, the same principle is applied to the adjusted EBITDA per CapEx dollar, which is the next chart here. And this to me, I think is going to go, you know, significantly higher because this will capture both operating leverage and the increase in gross margins that we're going to see uh, with Model Y, um, as well as additional revenue recognition from, uh, from FSD as well later this year. So um, these two numbers are important because they um, relate to this concept of return on capital. Return on capital are, is basically the ratio that looks at uh, return on assets or return on equity, right? So again, it goes back to the idea of, you know, growth is great, but as a shareholder, how much am I, what type of return am I seeing per dollar of capital that I have given to the company? And this is what Buffett would be paying attention to. If he, this is the kind of thing Buffett and Munger are gonna look at when they look at, what is the return on capital invested in a new project for this firm? 
And this is what you're about to say is why Warren Buffett should be putting every single dollar he can into Tesla, because my opinion is their new gigafactory, their new factories they're building, which is totally, you can't see the full effect of it because it's just all the old factories in the numbers is such a high return on capital. The CapEx is so low for dollar of output for dollar of gross profit, that it is like a no brainer. It would blow away any ROIC model that any automaker has for any auto plant probably in decades. And so if you're talking, if you're sitting in a boardroom and you're Volkswagen and you're Chrysler, this is the reason, this is the math of why you're like, I want to buy 10 gigafactories from Tesla if I can and start building them tomorrow, because for every dollar I invest, there is not, there's literally not a better dollar to invest than building a Tesla gigafactory right now. If you're yeah. from like an automotive capacity standpoint. Um, so that, sorry, I just, so, you know, that, that it's, because people hate on Elon Musk, like Tesla can't build cars. Everybody can build cars better than Tesla. And Elon's like, it's all about pace of innovation. And here we're seeing that the pace of innovation that Tesla has is so fast. They've actually totally surpassed everyone in the auto industry in, mm -hmm. um, in this metric. And that's something that nobody thought was possible. Yeah. And the, the only issue that I see though, is that, well, from the perspective of classical value investors is they calculate this return on invested capital, ROIC, or return on capital, return on assets, return on equity, all of these ratios using net income as the numerator and then using total assets as the denominator or total shareholder equity as a denominator. Um, so of course, if you use that calculation, then it's going to be negative for Tesla, right? Because their gap income is negative. But if you replace that with another metric, which is also popular, uh, CFROI or CFROA, that's the cash flow return on assets or cash flow return on you know, equity. That number is, as of right now, you know, competitive with the big four or the big three automakers, uh, namely GM, Ford, and Fiat Chrysler. So those numbers. That's the, this Tesla FCROI TTM. It's like it was negative for a while. Now it's look looks like it's about five percent. Yeah, exactly. Yep, it, it was negative for years because free cash flow was negative. You know, for you know since inception, but now it's flipped positive, and you can see that. And you know, I don't have the. Uh, uh, there's there's another chart that that I'll, I'll send you after this, but it's basically comping uh, Tesla's free cash flow return on assets or return on investment with GM, Ford, and Fiat Chrysler. And you can see that Tesla's already competitive with them right now. So that goes into one you know, point that I made in the triple play, which is what I was alluding to before, which is that there's growth, you know, hyper growth, but there's also very competitive return on capital. That measures the efficiency. For, for a given set of assets, Tesla's producing this much in cash flow. Relative to other automakers, that's very, very competitive. It's actually right in line with what they're doing right now. If you look at other automakers' cash flow relative to their assets and look at Tesla's cash flow relative to Tesla's assets, uh, Tesla's right there in, in, in the midst of the other guys there. So that measures the, uh, the extent to which Tesla's producing cash flow per dollar of assets or cash flow per dollar of equity. So me as a capital market participant, you know, because I'm an equity holder, I like to look at, you know, cash flow relative to equity. 
Um, or if you're looking at, you know, trying to understand is Tesla being efficient with overall assets, then you want to look at cash flow relative to assets, right? CFROA. In both metrics, uh, Tesla is competitive with the industry average. And we, but we don't want to look at that metric. We want to look at the rate of change of that metric. Yes. And, that, and if you look at that, it's, it's like, you know. Exactly. And I think that's what's going to reveal itself. It's competitive right now as of Q4 2019. What, what happens in 2020, I think, is going to make, uh, it, it's going to make the difference because I think that's when Tesla will leapfrog everybody else. And we're going to see Tesla achieve the industry-leading uh, you know, cash flow return on assets as well as cash flow return on equity. Uh, and we're going to see that, I think, this year. And that's why I think the market is starting to sniff this out. And that's why we see such a, such a crazy run-up in the shares because of this particular fact. Excellent. And so, you know, now stepping back a little bit more high level, that was such a good breakdown of when we're buying Tesla, it's a vertically integrated, you know, company with all these increasing metrics. Um, when we're buying, you know, Ford or GM, it's like they've outsourced everything. It's almost like a brand and a financing operation. You know, how much of even apples to apples comparison is Tesla to these other automakers um, in a lot of these metrics? Because a lot of people will say like the price sales ratio of other automakers, price earnings ratio is so much lower. Um, but I have to think that's because the growth is so low and maybe because under the hood, these financials aren't as good as they seem. So could you help me try and bridge that gap of why Tesla trades more like a high growth tech company, you know, not an auto company, or that's kind of the, what has people so confused? Yeah. Um, so I think it, it's trading at a, at a significant premium over the market, specifically be, over the auto market, specifically because of these three things. We see, you know, 50% revenue caker, right? No one has that in the auto industry. Uh, we're seeing, uh, you know, a, an inflection in free cash flow and a growth in free cash flow that exceeds everybody else. Um, we're seeing competitive cash flow return on assets, as I just mentioned, and competitive cash flow return on equity. Uh, and you know, at the and at the same time, the other part of it, right, is is looking at the cost of capital, right? Uh, and that's another thing that's a little bit uh, more, um, you know, clandestine. It's a little bit less understood, right? What is the cost of capital? So a stock can go up because it has increasing free cash flow or increasing cash flow. A stock can also go up if their cost of capital is, is, dec is, is declining, right? Basically when they go to get a loan, how much are they being charged? Right, yeah. So overall both loan, for both debt and equity together is the cost of capital. So what can drive the cost of capital lower? Uh, one of that is leverage risk. Right. And so that's why we have this next chart here. It looks at Tesla's net debt. And we see that it hit a very high level of around, I think, Q2 of 2018, where their net debt was about $9.2 And net debt is just taking total debt, right, minus uh, their cash on the balance sheet. So if you look at that, it actually dropped from, you know, a high of $9.2 It kind of bounced back a little bit there. Over the next couple of quarters, it you know went back up to 9.1 billion. But then what happened throughout 2019? It dropped significantly from 9.2 at the high to under seven. That's a 25% reduction in net debt. 
when net debt goes down, that means leverage risk is going down. And when leverage risk goes down, the cost of capital goes down. When cost of capital goes down, the equity and the bonds go up. So that's why we saw bonds. If you look at uh, you know the Tesla price of the price of Tesla's bonds and equity, both are going up. In my opinion, because we see that there's effective deleveraging happening in the balance sheet. So twenty-five percent reduction in their net debt. Now, some of that is due to equity, right? Due to their equity raise, right? So if you if if you know if Tesla goes to the capital markets again and does another billion or two billion in equity. Um, then of course their net debt is going to go down, right? But as we saw in the previous chart, they're free cash flow positive. And free cash flow has nothing to do with how much they're raising in debt or equity, right? That's the core cash collection from their core business operations, including all of their growth spending. So yeah, it went down and part of it is due to the fact that they did raise equity, but it's not entirely due to that. So as long as free cash flow is positive, uh, the net debt will continue to drop. And I believe um, as of, you know, by the end of this year, we're going to see net debt, you know, almost cut in half um, from 6.9 billion to about 3.8 billion by the end of this year. So I believe that's my, that's my personal estimate, you know, considering the, the free cash flow of 1 billion, um, the 2.3 billion in equity raise that they did, on top of the 6.3, um, you know, billion in cash exiting Q4 of last year. Yeah, and you're not even adjusting this net debt position for the size of the business, which is getting way bigger as well. So I feel like that's another factor at play that makes that kind of, you know, basically de facto reduces the debt without reducing it, just because the business, the assets are getting bigger. But yeah, and and that's why I have this next chart here, which looks at the net debt relative to that adjusted EBITDA number. And this is a metric used by a lot of folks um, to, to measure the effective leverage of a company. So we saw that it hit a very high level of you know, Q3 of 2018. So net debt relative to their EBITDA was you know, almost 14 times, which is very high, right? So there was a, a you know, major risk and a lot of you know, short sellers were right to point out that they are you know, heavily, heavily leveraged. So if revenue or if something were to happen to the revenues or something were to happen to their cash flow, um, they would be in trouble right? with that high of a leverage ratio. But we saw, you know, through 2019 that that number dropped precipitously, you know, from a high of about, you know, 14 times down to 2.2 times as of Q4 of last year. Um, and my prediction is that it's going to drop below two um, by the end of this year or sorry, uh, below um, one by the end of this year. So wow. that, that, and just to put that into context, um, investment grade companies, so you're, we're, I'm talking about like the Apples and Amazons of the world. Um, their average net debt to EBITDA is roughly one or maybe about, you know, it ranges from between like 0.5 to one. So I believe Tesla's net debt to EBITDA, and this sounds super crazy, I know how crazy it does sound, but I think that by the end of this year, we're gonna see Tesla's net debt to adjusted EBITDA in line with investment grade companies. 
So the highest credit quality companies out there, Tesla is going to be competitive with them on a leverage ratio on, on this particular leverage ratio. Wow. And so w- when you take a step back and you, and you look at all that, you know, how this valuation, all these metrics are coming in line with Tesla. I mean, it's, it's almost unbelievable for me to look at this and see how crystal clear this thesis is coming together from a bull case with the financials since the model three launch. So, you know, at a high level, just from the past two years, like what has surprised you about Tesla's execution and, you know, how confident are, in, are you that this like really is going to go all the way um, and be that, you know, Apple of the automotive world? I, I never would have thought that they'd be free cash flow positive at this point right now. Um, my original model, I, I was actually just reviewing it, the one that I built in 2016. I, I didn't expect them to have a, a period of four quarters of positive free cash flow until 2021. Um, so, you know, they're about, you know, they're about uh, two years ahead of where, where I thought they would be on a free cash flow wow. because I thought they would just continue to spend, spend, spend. They would have revenue growth, but they would have very poor, um, you know, overall, uh, you know, free cash flow. Uh, I thought it'd be negative for for many years to come. I thought they would just continue to raise capital, um, you know, which they are, but they're doing it because they can, not because they have to at this point. So that is the biggest surprise. And, uh, you know, I think that, you know, these numbers, it's, it's easy to, you know, be stuck in spreadsheets all day um, when in reality there's a, a real company that's doing, you know, crazy things in, you know, Gigafactory 3 um, where there's a learning curve, right? And I think they overspent uh, in Fremont for, in preparation for Model 3. You know, I think that's, that's been well documented by this point where, you know, they had a lot of learning, you know, hardcore lessons that they learned. And I think, you know, as they continue to build out these new factories, they're going to get, I believe they're going to get more and more uh, efficient with how they deploy their capital. So that's why I think the biggest trends to watch, you know, these uh, Tesla is not just their growth, right? Not just how much, um, you know, are they attacking new markets? Like we, we know that they're going to grow revenue because they're entering a new market uh, with the Model Y. We know that this Tesla semi is coming, which is personally my favorite, uh, you know, but I'm most excited about the Tesla semi. Um, You know, we know the Cybertruck is coming. We know other products are coming. So that's going to be sources of revenue growth. Um, What's also going to be a source of revenue growth is increasing market share. So that's obviously there. Um, But I think what's also important is looking at this uh, concept of cash flow return on assets and cash flow return on equity. And it's already competitive with the big three automakers today, right now as of Q4. And the growth of that number is such that I think it's gonna leapfrog the others you know, by the end of this year. So that's, a, that's a big trend to watch. And then lastly, it's the fact that they're massively, massively deleveraging their balance sheet. So we see the net debt number going down and we see the net debt to EBITDA number going even further down uh, to the point where I think it's going to be, um, you know, competitive with, you know, investment grade companies. Now, do I think they're going to get an investment grade credit rating? I don't think so. Um, but because uh, by the way, that number net debt to EBITDA is one of the 
major inputs that's used by the, uh, the credit rating agencies. So when Moody's and S&P go out and, and rate companies, this is one of the things that they look at is net debt EBITDA. So if this number continues to drop the way that I think it will, um, I don't know if Tesla will get an investment grade credit rating. I think that might take another year or two, maybe two years, or maybe further than that. Um, but they will get credit rating upgrades, that's for sure. Excellent. And so one trend that I've been watching in particular that I feel is very sort of overlooked because it's never happened before is this FSD software. Tesla sells, you know, seven or eight grand for an additional software package for their vehicles, which is almost unprecedented in the auto industry and not a one-off. They're raising the prices. They're planning another price raise soon when they come out with stop, stop lights and traffic lights, which is going to be epic. Um, but, you know, my point is as the price goes up of FSD, um, as more of the vehicle's ASP goes to software, as the attachment rate goes up for FSD, like Tesla's changing what it is to sell a car and the potential gross margin structure of that. And so, you know, they, they sell $8,000 package. They are able to recognize that revenue um, over time rateably as they release these features, you know, so they're almost building up a deferred, so or deferred revenue backlog where they get cash up front, like a SaaS software company, um, in, into their financials. And so how do you think about this component? Because to me, this is, this is the big, you know, this idea that Tesla can capture huge incremental software margins on the road to full autonomy. They don't need to have a full autonomous robot taxi to start to dip into these huge game changing software margins for the business model. So how do you think about the price raise of ASP and the attachment rate and what that's going to do to this entire model? Because we're seeing Tesla's getting better at building the cars. That's one thing. And they're getting way more profitable at doing that. And they're selling them profitably. That's exciting. They're going to keep doing that. And then we have this other like sort of gravy on top, which is they're also selling software more profitably on top. It, there's almost two mega tailwinds for the profitability of each sale of a Tesla. So how is this software layer factoring into your thesis? Yeah, I think, um, so, so the, the revenue that's associated with uh, the sales of FSD um, are sitting on the balance sheet right now. A lot of it is sitting on the balance sheet because, you know, since, they're selling an options pack, a software option package that isn't fully ready yet. Um, they can't recognize that revenue, right? So it's not revenue that's recognized, but it's uh, deferred revenue that sits on the liability section of the balance sheet. So as they push, you know, new features out of FSD, it's going to come from the balance sheet and onto the onto the income statement, right, in the form of revenues. That's going to be uh, positive for gross margins. Um, so. It's great from a gap accounting standpoint because we're going to see a big uptick in, in gross margins as they push new features out. Um, but I don't like to think of it that way because um, the revenue that they collect from FSD sales is already captured in cash flow. So, you know, if they simply push out new features and therefore that triggers recognizing a whole bunch of revenue. That's going to be positive for gross margins. It's going to be positive for gap uh, net income even, um, but it won't change cash flow and it won't change free cash flow because that number is already recognized in cash flow. Because remember, cash flow measures how much cash did they actually collect, right? So if someone pays for the full FSD option, that's money that Tesla has you know taken into their bank account, even though it sits on the balance sheet as a liability. 
um, it's counted as a part of their operating cash flow and therefore their free cash flow. So simply uh, recognizing revenue is not going to do anything for their cash flow, free cash flow. What does interest me a lot, though, is the um, change in the take rate for FSD going forward, right? So if they start to push out new features, like, for example, it's going to start to, we already saw that, you know, that, uh, that, the, that autopilot can recognize um, you know, uh, cones now, for example, you can start to see the visualization of the cones. And then if, they, if it starts to recognize stop signs and traffic lights and be able to navigate through local roads, that's going to be a big selling point for people to buy the FSD package. So therefore, that's going to be increased cash flow as well in the future as the take rate goes up. So simply shifting the money from deferred revenue to revenue is not going to do anything for cash flow. It's going to be great for, for uh, gross margins. It'll, it'll get the Wall Street analysts pumped, even though it's just... Yeah, it's going to get everybody excited. the numbers around on the computer, it doesn't change anything. But the, the analysts... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So if you're... If you're this, is, this is the problem that I have with gap accounting, is that people are going to get stoked because it's, you know, suddenly they have this huge jump in gross margins and therefore you know, possibly a, a gap profit. Um, but it's going to do nothing for cash flow. And I'm, I'm a cash flow guy, I'm a free cash flow guy, so I believe in the supremacy of free cash flow as well as operating but, cash flow. Exactly, but this could be a reason why Tesla's gap statements now, their gap gross margin, which is already great for automotive standards, has been severely understated because they're not allowed to, to recognize all this revenue because of this rule. But you know that's why the cash generation of Tesla's business is sort of underappreciated. And then I'm I'm looking at the trajectory of, of this, and I'm like, this isn't a one-time thing. FSD prices are going up, attachment rates are going up. This you know Tesla's structural gross margin is much higher than it looks on a gap basis, and that's mm -hmm. not going away. I actually think that's increasing. The cash yeah. you know gap gross margin is like 18 or 19 percent overall for the company. Cash gross margin might be you know 20 because of this FSD and I only see that going up and up and up and we talk about manufacturing improvements like I, don't, I guess the point I'm trying to get in with all of this is like at a long-term kind of true gross margin even for a mass market car selling 45 grand or 50 grand Tesla can be making 30 percent mm -hmm. and this is it almost the entire thesis can boil down to that number and that's way higher it's more of a Apple-esque computers on wheels company and the margins will get there because of this software layer than just a car company um, and that changes the whole structural profitability and valuation. And so that's what gets me like, and we're seeing it, you know, my theory is every time the take rate hits 25% or some number, Elon goes, okay, we're raising the price pretty much along with features, you know, when the new features come out. But yeah. uh, so for me, this gets me very, very excited because this is over the next 12, you know, for the next three, five years, do I just see consistent improvements in the price and take rate? Yes. That, and that's, that, I think that's what, I, what I'm sort of focused on as well, because as they roll out, as they, as they improve the functionality of FSD, that will change, although that's not going to do anything for, um, you know, cash flow, what will change cash flow is, you know, a uptake in the take rate of FSD. So if more people who are ordering their Model Ys or Model 3s start to buy FSD, then that, that will you know, cause a change, uh, a bump in, in their cash flow. So that's what I'm watching as well. So it's, it's not just a, a bump in gross margins due to recognizing that revenue 
um, but it's also a bump in revenue itself if the take rate goes up. The big, the big, uh, the, the big thing to watch, the, the couple of mega trends to watch is um, the operating leverage kicking in, the efficiency of returns on capital, specifically cash flow, return on assets, and return on equity. And then also watching the trend in that net debt number. So we, you know, I think we're going to see a significant decrease in the effective leverage of the company. So to me, that's a trifecta. That's sort of a triple play because we're seeing growth. We're seeing competitive returns on capital and we're seeing a balance sheet that's getting deleveraged. Wow. Uh, you don't really typically see all three things happening all at once for any given company. Um, it's not that it's not very common to see that. And that's, I think, because of the fact that all three are happening simultaneously, that uh, that's, in my opinion, the, the primary reason why, you know, the, the, you know, the stock has soared the way it has. Yeah. And you hit on an excellent point, which is as unique Tesla is from a product, uh, you know, what they're doing is so cool, Elon Musk, like from a financial case study perspective, and just a fan of business, I feel like this is like, it's unbelievably unique and just fascinating and breaking so many rules. And like, it's probably the best business case study we've ever had since Amazon, you know, playing out in real time, I would say probably more interesting than Amazon. And it's literally like playing out live as we, you know, so I just think it's so, so cool to like kind of track the progress. And I can't wait to see how all these charts sort of like unfold with the Model Y, which is really this next piece of this whole story. Yep, absolutely. It's gonna be crazy. Well, thank you so much for coming on uh, the podcast, Meyer. This was awesome. Definitely would love to have you on again. Um, people can follow you on Twitter. I believe you got a Twitter account, right? Fresh Jiva. Yep, Fresh Jiva. Awesome. Um, any final thoughts for the hyperchangers or words about Tesla predictions, Q1, Q2, anything like that? Yeah, just uh, a, a word of advice. Don't, don't do what I did and sell because I sold about half of my shares thinking that the shutdown is going to you know, really hamper Fremont. Um, so I'm regretting that obviously. So don't do what I did. Oh, you tried to get fancy. Just buy and hold. But you're a long-term <laughs> Tesla investor, right? You're still holding some. Oh yeah. It's still my number one position. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, stay safe out there and uh, have a good one. Thanks again, Maya. Really appreciate All right, man. it. Thank you. Yeah.